Hello and welcome to the Low Tech Podcast. I'm Scott Johnson from the Low Technology Institute, your host for podcast number 35 on March 16th, 2018, coming to you out of the Low Tech Recording Room in Cooksville, Wisconsin. Thanks for joining us. Today I'll be discussing sustainable living as described by Arnie Nass and others that feed into some principles for living. We'll also have our regular weekly news roundup and institute updates. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at low underscore techno. Like us on Facebook, find us on Instagram, and check out our website, lowtechinstitute.org. There you can find both of our podcasts, as well as information about joining and supporting the Institute and its research. Today I'll be discussing some ideas I've been working on for a new book. The story follows a band of ecological activists bent on dismantling our fossil fuel-dependent industrial society in a humane way. Please note that much of what follows comes from a book and is written from the perspective of a group of ecological activists. And it's sometimes expressed as an extreme opinion, but I think a lot of the ideas expressed here are certainly worth thinking about and maybe integrating in a softer way into our everyday lives today. Uh, with an eye to the future that may be very different from how we live right now. I don't mean to say you have to embrace all these principles or anything like that. I'm just saying these are a set of ideas that are absolutely worth discussing. I hope you'll find the ideas intriguing, even if the tone might be a little less than pleasant. And do forgive the background noise. It's maple sugaring season, and you are hearing the boiling sap in the background as I have to monitor it so it doesn't boil over and burn, wasting tons and tons of syrup. So I apologize for the audio, audio quality, but know that it's for a good reason. Following Nass, Leopold, and other natural philosophers, we have devised three precepts for reforming our society. First, we must recognize that we are one of many species on this planet. Second, we must work to mimic successful and natural systems and live off the planet's surpluses. And third, we must prefer the simple to the complex and the complex to the complicated. Human beings' ability to think has enabled us to overvalue our position on Earth. Well, we can outthink insects, they out-eat us, outweigh us, and outnumber us. Metacognition, or our ability to think about thinking, ourselves, and our place in the world, however, has endowed humans with hubris. Many cultural traditions, not just the Judeo-Christian ones, believe that the world was created for humans. Anything that is not human is considered a resource for humans to exploit. Every animal, every plant, and every mineral is thought to be just waiting for a human to come along to use it. Instead, we must recognize that we are one species on the planet, and just like every other organism, we have evolved with special traits. We are not the fastest or the strongest, nor do we have sharp claws or dangerous teeth. Our specialty is thinking and communicating. That's all. These abilities have granted us an outsized influence on the world and dominion over other organisms but with this power comes responsibility. We have been shirking our responsibility and abusing our influence. We must take a more objective view of life on Earth and use that perspective to reign in our arrogance. We live in a post-enlightenment society, and most of us believe that science and careful study can lead to a greater understanding of the world, often through experimentation. Nature has been running experiments in survival for over four billion years, since the beginning of life on Earth. While we are quick to share the latest scientific discovery on social media, we are loath to critically examine our own way of life when compared to the many experiments carried out by nature. For example, 
No species has survived by exhausting its resources, yet we appear hell-bent on burning the last drop of oil. No other omnivore depends so completely on a few species of plants as we do. And furthermore, no mammals, including us, have ever adapted to survive on such a high consumption of cereals and grains. Successful species, that is, those that have a stable population and have survived for millions of years, share a number of traits. First, they depend on the sun, decomposing organics, or geothermal heat for external sources of energy. Second, successful species respect their resources. Wolves eat the young, old, and sick of their prey, leaving the herd to reproduce. And herbivores migrate to fresh pastures, leaving the exhausted ones to regenerate. Third, omnivores survive because they eat a wide variety of foods akin to having a diverse stock portfolio. If one stock fails, they can eat more of the others. We ignore the successful adaptations around us at our peril. We knowingly overtax our environment by using more resources than necessary. We purposefully complicate our lives and call it progress. Living depends on five actions, sleeping, eating, drinking, breathing, and eliminating, plus procreation when we discuss the continuation of the species in general. From a minimalist point of view, Everything we do beyond fulfilling these five actions is an added complication. This critique labels almost all jobs in the industrialized world as complications. Most of us do not build our own shelter or bed. Most do not grow or even cook our own food. Gathering our drinking water, fermenting our favorite beverage, or worrying about bodily waste, none of us do any of these. On a daily basis, we must only decide in which way we wish to fulfill our needs. Most of our time is spent in pursuit of diversions. Of course, many of our diversions are exciting and bring us great joy. Art, music, sports, storytelling, games, etc. Our society, though, takes for granted the fulfillment of the five actions needed for survival and consequently has shifted its focus to the fulfillment of diversions. Furthermore, the way in which we fulfill our needs has become incredibly complicated. We must eliminate the complications, reduce the complexity, and champion the simple and straightforward. The more of the five actions that we can see to for ourselves, the better. We can summarize all of these ideas together in three what you might call precepts. Number one, realizing that we're one of many species on the planet. Number two, understanding that we should copy successful natural systems, undertake natural mimicry. And three, we should prefer the simple to the complex and the complex to the complicated. These are simple concepts, but they have profound implications for our everyday lives. The Swedish ecological philosopher Arne Nass articulated a list of character traits, which I'm going to talk about now, that we hope to cultivate in a new society. These are not meant to be rules, but examples of how one might live according to the precepts that I just talked about. We might search for a meaningful life of simplicity. Keep it simple. Reach goals in the most straightforward way possible. Millions of years ago, plants died, decomposed, and became peat. That peat was buried and became oil. Today, that oil is pumped out of the ground, heated until it becomes a gas, condensed into plastic, and turned into a bag that is used for 20 minutes before being thrown away, only to sit in a landfill for a thousand years, where it can release toxins and choke animals. Is this really the simplest way to carry groceries? This is just one of thousands of ways we build unnecessary complications into our lives. We have grown so accustomed to this complication that we see it as mundane and benign, but this couldn't be further from the truth. When faced with a decision, ask yourself, what is the simplest, 
least wasteful way to reach your goal. Choose activities that have intrinsic values and avoid those that are merely diversions. We should recognize an inherent difference between activities done with a responsible purpose and those done as a mere distraction. Traveling to accomplish a task is different from joyriding. Catching a fish for dinner differs from sport fishing. Growing a vegetable garden is not the same as maintaining a pristine grass lawn. We live in such abundance that we create new problems and goals to keep ourselves busy. Although too many people work hard to provide for their basic needs, more still earn enough money to spend on leisure pursuits and status symbols. We have become so used to the regular availability of food and the relative safety we enjoy that we take these things for granted. The myriad things that we have invented to occupy our time and absorb any extra income have become perceived as necessities when in fact they are a drain on our common resources. When deciding how to spend your time, think of activities related to eating, socializing, or taking care of yourself and your loved ones. Let's attempt to live in a meaningful way and not just fill the hours by being busy. Or as Thoreau put it, we, quote, should not play life or study it merely while the community supports us at this expensive game, but earnestly live it from beginning to end, end quote. And that's from Walden. We are constantly inundated with distractions. We invite intrusions into our lives. Our smartphones beep every time a friend from high school pokes a picture of her lunch. We lose sight of the big picture because we are bogged down in the minutiae. We can derive pleasure from many things, but too often we choose to spend our time completing fruitless tasks. Americans average 34 hours of television weekly. Globally, 3 billion hours of computer and video games are played each week. Deriving enjoyment from these things is not bad in and of itself, but as the world grinds towards social and ecological crisis, we should learn creativity, cooperation, and hand-eye coordination from real-world activities that create tangible byproducts. Minecraft, for example, is an immensely popular game in which players are able to use their imagination to build novel objects and buildings. A generation ago, children built forts and knickknacks from resources they found around them. Only in the later quote-unquote game would children learn real-world physical skills, even though in both games, even though both games are essentially the same idea. Look for depth and richness of experience rather than intensity. To appreciate and choose, whenever possible, meaningful work rather than just making a living. Enjoy the soreness in your muscles after turning over your garden instead of using a motorized tiller. Handmade goods and food are twice as valuable as store-bought. You enjoy them once when you make them and a second time as you consume them. Travel by foot or bicycle may be slower, but it gives more time for enjoying the world. It's no coincidence that high-paying occupations are either odious or require great skill and training. If fossil fuels did not pay well, people would find other ways of making a living that didn't condemn their children to a bleak future. Corporate officers are well compensated because they must put the interests of their stockholders above the safety of their workers and customers. Many people are lucky enough to have a choice in what jobs they perform. We should have a society that examines the total contribution of a person's effort, not just the amount of money he or she earns. Too many must work less than desirable jobs for low pay just to survive in our current system but they can find other ways to contribute meaningfully to their family, friends, and community. Lead a complex life, not a complicated one, cultivating as many positive experiences as possible. For example, it's currently cheaper and easier to buy ready-made products than to make them at home, but for the superficial ease of this lifestyle, we add layers of complication to our lives and remove ourselves from the chain of responsibility from production. We gain a sense of personal fulfillment and accomplishment from making things, it takes more time, effort, and skill, and often the final outcome is less than ideal in the beginning. 
but it can be a more positive experience than simply purchasing some anonymous product. In many other ways, we can reform our lives to replace complication with complexity while increasing our positive experiences and minimizing the negative ones. What about careful consumption? We should work to avoid consumerism, overconsumption, and superfluous personal property. Decade after decade, the average American possesses more stuff. Our houses have been getting bigger to accommodate this increase in possessions. Many kitchens, for example, have a variety of gadgets that perform single tasks. Granted, a food processor, garlic press, pizza slicer, apple core, banana slicer, and corn kernel remover may all perform their tasks admirably, but a single chef's knife and cutting board can perform the same tasks almost as well, if not as quickly. Our closets bulge with clothing, much of which is produced in slave labor-like conditions, the main reason why we can have so many garments so cheaply. We own so many articles of clothing that we get rid of them when fashions change, well before they wear out from use. Try to maintain and appreciate common items so that everybody's needs can be met. We have been taught that we live in a world ruled by the maxim, survival of the fittest. This is something I'll get into at another time. One of the things that sets humans apart from other animals is that we have replaced physical competition with cognition. We use weapons to best other animals and humans instead of fighting with our hands and teeth. We work together to outthink other species and humans. As direct physical competition for resources has declined in the industrial world, we have created other guises to demonstrate our fitness, both physical and social. We use sports and other competitions to showcase our physical prowess. We display our wealth and taste with expensive objects and social behavior. We must, however, get over the idea of besting our fellow human beings and instead focus on encouraging everything to live up to its potential. This includes people, other animals, and even plants. One way we can manifest this ideal is by taking only what is truly a fair share. By taking more of a finite resource than you can comfortably consume, you may be depriving someone or something else of what it needs to survive. One way to reduce consumption is to avoid neophilia. Although NAS calls it novophilia, it's more correct to say neophilia. Uh, basically, this means the love of new things. We should instead cherish well-worn items. In a world of abundance, we have to create scarcity. Each year, hordes of people clamor to exchange their year-old smartphones for the newest model. Fashions change faster than we can wear out our clothing, requiring the purchase of new items to be in. Car companies invent new creature comforts that we never knew we needed because the basic automobile design hasn't changed in decades. As children, we learn to ostracize those who are not up to date with the current trends in music, movies, or clothing. Instead of producing goods that last, companies build cheaply and make a second profit when their products require inevitable replacement. Instead of repairing something that is damaged, we throw it out. We must hold up the ideal of having a few well-built, long-lasting items instead of many cheap, disposable ones. We must reorient our society's value system to prize the heirloom, avoid the derivative, and still remember that these are just things. We can also participate in and cultivate an appreciation of primary production, such as small-scale agriculture, forestry, and fishing. For a generation or more, most of us in the first world have been divorced from the production of anything we consume. From food and shelter to clothing and transportation, we purchase ready-made products. Even modern farmers do not eat their own produce. We can start small by cooking meals from scratch, repairing worn-out clothing, or starting a small garden. Sometimes these skills require patience and training, 
but the benefits will outweigh the costs over time, especially as the system supplying ready-made products collapses. We must recognize the difference between vital needs and desires. Our society has trained us to shop for fun while ignoring the needs of others. Everybody will be better off when we reduce our sheer number of possessions and favor the old, much worn, but essentially well-kept things. With the abundance of products and the super abundance of calories available to most people today, many have become insulated from true want. This is not meant to diminish the tribulations of disadvantaged people across the world, but to make the point that people with even moderate wealth simply have to choose how their needs will be met and rarely have to make truly hard choices between necessities. Our society equates consumption with status, and this will be a difficult habit to break, but we can choose to do it now or have it done for us later when fossil fuels run out. Food is a vital need, but how we fulfill this need must be examined closely. Meat eating goes back hundreds of thousands, if not millions of years into our shared history. Physiologically, our bodies are well equipped to consume meat. We can, however, be perfectly healthy consuming only plant-based foods. Too often, meat is taken for granted and we do not think about its origins. Modern meat consumption is not sustainable, as it takes an immense amount of energy and resources to raise, slaughter, preserve, and prepare industrial meat. If you had to raise, kill, butcher, and prepare the meat you ate, would you eat it as often, or even at all? If you're uncomfortable with the thought of killing and eating an animal, perhaps you should consider what you're asking others to do so that you can continue to consume meat, pretending that it appears by magic in the supermarket. In general, we should think carefully about the food we eat, where it comes from, and what sort of externalized costs are associated with its production. The shorter the chain of consumption, the better off every involved organism will be. While some diets will always contain meat, each person must carefully examine his or her own consumption. We must support the building of communities instead of societies. The Industrial Revolution changed many aspects of our daily lives, and while most who credit it with growing our material wealth, fewer recognize the impact it has had on social relations. In 1887, Frederick Tönnies noted the development of urban industrial Gesellschaften, or associations, as people left their rural close-knit Gemeinschaften, or communities. While the former are based on common interests, the later grow out of personal relationships. As we recognize that we are one of many species on this planet, we must also accept that we are a part of a community, and our actions affect others. No one is an island onto him or herself. Perhaps we can create real Gemeinschaften in urban areas, but it is likely to be easier in smaller communities where most people know one another. In either case, our focus when interacting with others should be to cultivate community rather than simple transactional associations. Every society around the world has developed a way of life that fits into its surroundings. Each community is an experiment in living, and everyone has something to contribute. Western and American cultures have been exported to many parts of the world where they disrupt well-functioning indigenous lifeways. This causes two problems. First, industrial living is unsustainable for the one-fifth of the world that already uses it, let alone for all seven billion and counting people on the planet. Second, industrial society suppresses alternative ways of life that may hold the key for our survival as a species. Because fossil fuels will run out, it is the first world that must learn how to survive from the third world. And just a note on terms here, I'm avoiding the term developed and underdeveloped because it makes so-called development appear as an aspirational goal for the rest of the world, which it neither is nor should be. One of the best ways to appreciate and understand the similarities and differences among humans is to travel, but we must be careful to move between communities in a responsible, sustainable way. 
We should have concern about how the third world lives and avoid gross inequalities in our own lives. We do not all need to live the same way, and what I'm talking about here is not about forcing everybody to be a hunter-gatherer. Everybody in the world lives on a spectrum. On one end are those who have minimal infrastructure possessions and environmental impact. On the other end are those who live in the extreme opulence of industrial society. The distribution of this spectrum on a graph shows most people living a modest sedentary life while only a few live in an exorbitant fashion. By averaging these lifestyles, or at least removing the extremists at the top, we can ensure that everybody has access to adequate shelter. In the industrialized world, this would require repairing and maintaining existing buildings and only creating new structures out of renewable permanent materials, such as wood or stone. It means using fossil and other resources at a sustainable level that is averaged across the global community. One thing that sets people who think about this stuff apart from those who continue to ignore science and destroy the world is that we actually value life. In our fight to create a more sustainable world, we can't lose sight of the fact that we support the right of every living thing to reach its potential, and this means an absolute insistence on non-violent resolutions. I don't advocate pacifism necessarily, as a single aggressor can too easily dominate when he or she has no resistance. Many non-violent options can be used against aggression, especially when a majority of the population is committed to non-violent resistance. Furthermore, aggression tends to stem from an inequality in resources or a drive for status. By working to level resource distribution and awarding social status to positive pro-social activities, we can change the way people think about quote-unquote getting ahead. Furthermore, a distinction can be made between violence and necessary killing. It's not a violent act to eat plants or animals per se, but the manner of harvest must avoid inflicting more pain than necessary on animals. And finally, respect for the wild. We can attempt to live in nature rather than just visiting beautiful places, and we can decide to travel responsibly. Travel enables and encourages us to learn about the world. Without travel, we would not have Darwin's theory of evolution. Our experiences would be confined to a small world of limited ideas. Excessive travel, though, especially for business or status-seeking tourism to remote or sensitive areas such as Antarctica, is hard on the world. Furthermore, our sequestration in buildings and urban areas where organic growth is fettered reinforces the divide between humans and the rest of the world. Living within or having an occupation that deals with a non-industrial ecosystem will change anyone's point of view. The rest of the world is no longer seen as separate when one spends most of his or her time out in quote-unquote nature. When we are in vulnerable ecosystems, we should tread lightly. We've all seen areas that are at risk. Old-growth forests, coral reefs, freshwater lakes, rainforests, coasts, the Arctic, and so on. Part of accepting our place in this world is recognizing how our actions affect ecosystems. Most of us are happy to protect what we call nature when we are visiting a park or hiking through wilderness by leaving no trace. But it is more difficult to reform our overall way of life even though we recognize that the global ecosystem is vulnerable. We must break down the artificial barrier that we think exists between humans and nature. Part of respecting the world is a tendency to appreciate all life forms rather than merely those considered to be beautiful, remarkable, or narrowly useful. We should not view animate beings merely as means to an end. Every organism has intrinsic value and dignity whether or not we use them as resources. When the interests of anthropocentric species, that is, dogs, cats, domesticated plants, come into conflict with wild species, we should respect the rights of the latter. For example, wolves were hated and feared in the American West. They were systematically hunted and driven out of inhabited areas, as they were only seen as threats to humans and livestock. Their role as hunters of wild ungulates, that is deer, antelope, and elk, and lagomorphs, or rabbits and hares, was underappreciated. 
After they'd been eradicated, prey populations soared and farmers felt a different impact of wild animals on their crops. It's hard for us to appreciate the role played by species that we do not consider to be beneficial to humans, yet in many cases we seek to destroy animals we later come to understand as vital for preserving the local ecosystem. We should not judge whether or not another species has the right to exist because we have proved to be short-sighted. We should not judge whether or not a species has the right to exist because we have proved to be short-sighted. We should work to protect local ecosystems, not just the life form we deem to be beneficial, not because it benefits us, although it does, but because we are just part of that ecosystem, not its master. Furthermore, we can deplore excessive interference in nature as unnecessary, unreasonable, and disrespectful, and condemn it as insolent, atrocious, outrageous, and criminal, without condemning the people responsible for the interference. Yes, part of being human is modifying the landscape around us. For example, hunter-gatherers burn grasses and forests to encourage new growth that brought out deer and other species they preferred to hunt. But it is incumbent on us to think carefully about how we modify that landscape. When selecting trees to harvest for lumber to build a house, we might look at selecting only a few trees out of a forest instead of clear-cutting a small area. We will impact our surroundings simply by being alive. That is unavoidable. But by considering the natural cycles around us, we can attempt to fit ourselves into a pre-existing framework instead of letting our id predominate. End rant. Now let's turn to this week in low-tech news. I've got a couple of articles that I'm going to link to in the show notes page. Uh, one comes from NPR, and it is a starts with a question. Why don't you see people-sized salmon anymore? And they have this great picture from the early 1900s of six-foot-long giant multi-hundred pound Chinook salmon and the story goes on to describe and debate whether or not it is increased predation from killer whales that prefer to eat the larger oilier fish or is it the dammed streams uh, and other human changes to the environment that are causing the diminution of the size of these salmon and it's an interesting debate between those who say that it is increased killer whale activity while others argue killer whales have been around for quite a while and the only thing that's changed is how the, how the humans have impacted the landscape. There's also another fun story from The Salt on NPR uh, talking about the great Norwegian porridge debate and apparently in, in Scandinavia it was common to add a handful of flour to porridge at the end of the cooking cycle to kind of thicken it up and it was thought uh, earlier in the 1900s that this was a waste of flour because if the flour isn't cooked fully, your body can't digest it, which is true. And the longer bread rises, the longer um, flour cooks and is worked, the less difficult it is for your stomach to digest. But uh, apparently new science is showing that the flour was cooked enough, even in the short amount of time at the end of cooking a pot, a pot of porridge. And often the flour would make up for the nutrient deficiencies in the other things that made up the bulk of the porridge, which were often less than desirable or less than complete grains like buckwheat or, or oats. So adding that handful of flour would thicken it up and add a bit more nutri nutrients to it. So that's a story that's also worth checking out. And then on Fista, uh, there's an article by a guy named Patrick Noble, who is a Welsh farmer who has a wonderful website that's half in English and half in Welsh. Uh, he's been an organic farmer for over 40 years, and he's written a couple of books. Uh, but this article is called The Great Agricultural Resettlement or the Next Chapter of the Fall. And he discusses 
the problems with thinking that agriculture can be the source of carbon sequestration. Some Paris climate schemes and other ideas have suggested that we could increasingly store carbon in agricultural soils because it's possible to put more carbon in them in the form of organic matter. However, he points out very correctly that there's a diminishing return after a certain point, and once the soils have reached an optimal balance for the microbiome, they're not going to sequester any more carbon. There's no biological need or use for it. It's just not going to happen. And so schemes that rely on this are fundamentally flawed. But he talks much more broadly than this specific point. There's a couple really good points I want to call out. First, quote, I must note that true yield is output minus input. Massive inputs massively reduce true yield so that organic methods truly outyield all others, end quote. And this is so true, and many times we think about industrial agriculture as being more productive than uh, organic, or even, say, um, there's some folks in Illinois who are friends of friends of mine who use two mules for their farming. But if you think about all the energy that has to go into industrial farming, and not just diesel, but the tractors, the fertilizer, the whole industrial production chain, all of those inputs reduce the amount of output uh, or the overall amount of yield. Uh, even though they have higher output, their inputs are so high, it negates that. This is also pointed out by Borsodi. And you can hear more about that in podcast number 25 from the 2nd of June, 2017, Borsodi's flight from the city on this same podcast. Another point that Patrick makes is that, quote, we can claim the food timber dispensation and continue without guilt as we've done for several thousand years, but we cannot claim to be reversing climate change. We can only claim to be doing less to cause climate change than some others. End quote. And this is tying back into his idea that we can't just sequester more and more carbon into the ground. We can have better agricultural practices that do sequester more carbon than industrial methods, but we can't do it indefinitely. And finally, I think the most salient quote that I found in his article was, quote, energy opulent ways of life will destroy themselves. Even an imagined and perfectly balanced farming system with a thriving soil fauna will do nothing in itself to mitigate climate change. It will have minimized its agricultural disruption as a contribution to climate change, but it cannot go further towards negative emissions. We must remove the cause. We must end the burning for cultivation, processing, transport, electricity generation, and heat. End quote. And he's not referring to slash and burn agriculture where parts of the forest are cut down and then sown uh, with agricultural crops. He's talking about fossil fuels. And a fourth story from the conversation talks about greener cities and how we often think about green cities having walkable areas and accessible grocery stores and cafes and parks and uh, a lot of public transit and things like that as being green. But the authors, Trina Hamilton and Winifred Curran, both professors of geography, talk about the point that many times when we see these greening of certain areas, it also comes with the displacement of uh, low to middle income people who had previously been living in ungreen or more industrial type environments. And they point out that there has to be a social justice component to greening uh, any urban space. And I think that's a good point that's often overlooked. Those are some of the stories we're following in Low Tech News. All of these stories are linked in the show notes. To see the stories we discussed, send us a news tip and more. Visit the Low Tech website, lowtechinstitute.org, or follow the link in the podcast profile. 
And now for a brief recap of the research we have going on around the Institute. Well, spring is slowly coming upon us. Uh, we've had a couple of uh, back and forth uh, snows and thaws, but the maple syrup season is here and in the background you still might be able to hear boiling syrup as I monitor it so it doesn't burn, uh, but we'll have gotten about three gallons of syrup this year, which means we've boiled down about 120 gallons of sap. I'll be doing a blog post outlining the process that we use this year. We also had a workshop on maple sugaring a few weeks ago, which I was really happy with how that turned out. Coming up soon, we have a workshop on traditional Japanese pickles made by um, putting vegetables in a fermented bran bed. So this isn't in a vat of vinegar or salt. It's actually in a more of a dryish kind of um, porridge consistency bran that's been fermented and has lactic acid producing bacteria. So it sounds great. Put out a couple videos since the last time we had a podcast, one on sourdough starters. So check that out on our YouTube page or you can find it also through the website. Right now we're busily working on the timber frame chicken coop. I need to get the chickens out of the garden area where they've had free reign to hunt and peck and scratch around in what will be the garden beds this year, depositing their fertilizer as they go and uh, cleaning up a lot of insects along the way. But they're gonna be moved to the back of the property. We need to get them a chicken coop. And that's, so that's taking up much of my time, that construction project. We'll have people out this weekend for a chicken coop raising. Of course, I'll put a video and pictures on the blog, so stay tuned for that. We got two grants, I think, since I last had a podcast. Uh, one of them is for doing potato research this coming spring. We're looking really forward to partnering with 10 farmers around the area who are going to plant out potatoes in different methods to try and find out what's the most effective way to grow potatoes in a garden. At least when comparing those that are really common on the internet, to potato towers, containers, straw mulch, and others. We also got a grant to do a breeding project with bees. So we're gonna be buying a couple colonies and breeding them for mite resistance. That's gonna take many years and may or may not succeed, but it's worth a shot. Stay tuned for updates on that as well. We have a lot of projects going this spring. I'm starting to plant starts for the garden already, have seeds going. We already have some coming up, so that's nice to see the new green in the spring, and we're really just looking forward to a busy, exciting year here at the Institute. We hope to share that with you with workshops and the podcast as regularly as I can. So thanks for hanging with us. I know I missed a podcast a few weeks ago, so I'm glad to be back behind the mic and talking to you guys. So um, please check out our website, lowtechinstitute.org. You can see all of what we're doing on the blog. Also tell your friends. You can support our institute by going under the About Us tab. We have memberships with all kinds of benefits. You can also just support one of our projects like the tool library. We're currently taking donations to build a tool library. If you donate $50, you get a free year's membership to the Institute. If you donate $100, you get a free year's membership and your name gets written on the wall and website. So we're really looking for donations to help us finish up this project and looking forward to announcing when it's open and available for people to come and borrow tools as they need them. That's it for this week. The Low Tech Podcast is put out by the Low Technology Institute. At the moment, the show is hosted, edited, and distributed by me, Scott Johnson. The episode was recorded at the Low Technology Recording Room. Our intro music was The Confrontation off the album Passages by my new favorite background musician, Poddington Bear. That song is under the Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial License, and this podcast is under the Creative Commons Attribution and Share Alike License, meaning you're free to use and share it as long as you give us credit. 
Subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or TuneIn Radio. And if you enjoy this free podcast, please help repay us by sharing it with a friend and giving us a rating. The Low Technology Institute is a 501c3 research organization supported by members, grants, and underwriting. You can find out more about the Low Technology Institute, membership, and underwriting at lowtechnologyinstitute.org. Find us on social media and reach me directly at scott at lowtechinstitute.org. Thanks and take care.